This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. You'll find Southern Colorado's best beach party in a corner of the remote San Luis Valley. Here it comes. Nice job, Patrick. The Logren family of Erie, Colorado, built sandcastles at Medno Creek in the Great Sand Dunes National Park earlier this summer. Here's Elizabeth Logren. I think it's a really great place for kids to play. It's just kind of, it's easy, it's fun, it's enjoyable. CPR's Nathaniel Miner takes us to another of the park's ice-cold creeks. Its cool water offers hope as the park tries to protect itself from warmer temperatures. Yeah, I know. That felt like bait and switch, didn't it? Beach parties are a whole lot more fun to talk about than how our planet is warming. But I promise you, this climate change story isn't dour and depressing like so many others. That's because this story is about adaptation, how scientists are helping prepare parks for warmer temperatures. And here's the scientist who's going to help me tell that story. Uh, I'm Andrew Todd, and I'm a research biologist. Andrew Todd is a fish biologist for the United States Geological Survey in Lakewood. We're out on a trail on the backside of the Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve. When he was a kid, his dad took him and his siblings fishing near Aspen, and they would catch just a ton of fish. He always thought he was a great fisherman. But about 10 years ago, his dad told him the truth. He'd make sure we were on the water right after the stocking truck came through. So our, our whole childhood fishing experience was based on a lie. He got over it, though. Now, during the warm months, he gets out of the office and mucks around in waterways across the west. Today, we're at Sand Creek on the north side of the dunes. The water's cold and clear as it tumbles down from the Sangre de Cristo mountain range. And the water is why we're here. So we're, this is one of our, this is our lowermost water temperature site. Todd is part of a team working to save the Rio Grande cutthroat trout. It's a very particular type of fish only found in southern Colorado and New Mexico. And it's under pressure. Other types of trout outcompete it and breed with it when they're in the same waterways. Maybe I'm biased since I've done my research on the Rio Grande cutthroat trout for the last five years, but I think it's one of the prettiest fish in Colorado, and um, I think it's worth preserving. So the Rio Grande cutthroat is down to only 10 to 15 percent of its historic range. It's so rare, in fact, that the environmental group Center for Biological Diversity sued the federal government last month. They want the fish to be protected under the Endangered Species Act. The fish is also temperature sensitive. A few times a year, Todd and his team go out and collect data. And that means getting wet. Todd wades into the raging river to find his temperature logger. It's anchored with a piece of rebar um, in a housing. So assuming I can find it. Ten minutes later, as I'm busy slapping mosquitoes... So he is standing in two feet of water, moving very quickly, and it is ice cold. He found the temperature gauge, but can't get it out. A minute later, Todd gives up. It's still there, though, which is a good sign. So you're giving up? Yeah. Your hands get a little too cold. He'll come back in the fall when the stream is lower to collect the data. But what he has so far shows promise for the Rio Grande cutthroat. Up at the top of the mountain range, Todd says the sun actually warms Sand Creek quite a bit. But as it falls below treeline and its colder tributaries dump into it, it gets really, really cold. And that's just how the trout like it. And our standard for cutthroat trout is around 17 degrees C. C? That's Celsius, of course. 17 degrees Celsius is about 62 degrees Fahrenheit. And here in... Sand Creek, where it hits the sand, it's about 
uh, in most summers about 12 or 13. So we've got a good four or five degrees C buffer before we start to butt up against temperatures in here that would be that would preclude trout from being here. Park data shows that air temperatures have held fairly steady in the last few decades, but climate models predict they could go up anywhere from 3 to 9 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. If that happens, the trout would theoretically be okay. Beyond that... If we got to the point where it was exceeding a threshold that's suitable for trout, we're, we've got many other problems. One potential problem they want to avoid is a forest fire undoing their work. Wildlife officials got a scare earlier this summer during the Hayden Pass fire about 60 miles north of the dunes. They were worried that another rare cutthroat trout that only lives in one small location actually went extinct because of the fire. It turns out the fish survived, but the wildfire reinforced Todd's belief that restoration needs to happen on a big scale. So if you have a really small uh, stream, um, you know, just one stream, no tributaries, and it burns, you could lose that entire population. That's not the case at Sand Creek. Nearly the entire watershed is on public land, so the area the park is trying to restore isn't just one small piece of a big river. It's a whole self-contained system, from snowmelt-fed lakes to where the creek seeps underground on the valley floor. So if a fire scorches the lower part of the creek, the fish up top in the lakes and tributaries would still be okay. You could potentially have a fire in there that burned a good portion of the watershed, as long as it doesn't burn the whole thing. Um, you're, you're well buffered against things like wildfire and other stochastic events like drought. And climate change is one factor in those disasters becoming more frequent. Down the road, Todd and his team will work with Colorado Parks and Wildlife to remove all the non-native fish from the watershed. They'll use a natural pesticide called rotenone that kills only fish and leaves other wildlife unharmed. Then they'll stock it with Rio Grande cutthroat. The project isn't cheap. The Park Service says it'll spend about a quarter of a million dollars on it before it's all said and done. But Fred Bunch says it's worth it. He's the resource management specialist at the Great Sand Dunes National Park. He says the Sand Creek watershed is well-suited to protect fish from the changes in climate. And it's all a function of elevation. And the higher elevation streams may be uh, a great area for habitat for the Rio Grande cutthroats as as we see this um, climatic variability. He says the park has a great opportunity to help the struggling fish. If this species is restored to 12 miles of prime habitat, that is a huge victory for the species and uh, great having a native uh, trout in, in the national park. So there you have it. The lesson here is that national parks are getting smarter about how they approach big projects. They want to make sure their work is worth it now, next year, and decades from now, whatever the climate will be like then. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. How do you restore something when you're not exactly sure how it originally looked? With the impact of climate change on national parks, it's a question that restoration ecologists increasingly have to grapple with, including Nick Fisichelli. He's the forest ecology director for the Skodik Institute at Acadia National Park and a former climate change adaptation ecologist with the National Park Service in Fort Collins. He joins us from his office in Maine. Welcome. Hi, thanks. What is restoration ecology as it relates to climate change? Well, it's uh, adaptation and restoration are are about uh, adapting to changing conditions, to to 
looking at at what was there in the past and understanding uh, what might be in our, our systems in the future and seeing how we can manage those systems. But how do you restore areas when you have no idea exactly how they originally looked? Well, that's a great question. And, and we, we do have some ideas, many, many good ideas about how these systems look in, in the past. But at the same time, we have to be careful and recognize that, that uh, systems are changing, that climate change is ongoing and there are other stressors out there so that we can't just try to aim towards one point in time in the past for restoration and conservation actions, but recognize that we're dealing with dynamic systems. And of course, those systems are changing. What is an example then of the kind of work being done in the restoration ecology field? Well, I, I think the, from the previous piece talking about the, the Rio Grande cutthroat trout mm-hmm. is, is a great example where it's, it's now only found in about 10 to 15 percent of its historical range. And so you can look at that, that its full historical range and see which areas within that range maybe could still um, have suitable habitat for that species in the future as, as uh, temperatures, water temperatures, continue to warm and, and use that type of information to, to guide restoration efforts. And so perhaps to recognize some areas of the historical range, especially uh, lower elevation areas that, that may have, have warmer waters, Perhaps it, it may not be effective in the long term to try to restock cutthroat trout in that area. But other higher elevation areas perhaps have, have cooler water temperatures where the species may be able to persist for longer periods into the future. Are you also looking at forest restoration as, as well? Uh, absolutely, yes. And, and, and forests, uh, of course, are, are, are comprised of trees which are long-lived. And, and so there's a real challenge there that instead of just thinking about the, the forest for the next year, five or ten years, you have to think on a multi-decadal to, to century scales. And, and so you have to really think far out into the future what conditions may, may look like. And, and, and that's what, what species you may, may want to, to foster in those forests. Are, are these the same species that were there in the past? Or, or do you need to also think about perhaps species that were found at lower elevation or that were are more warm adapted? And, and is it appropriate to, to include some of those species in restoration activities? And with that said, how do you even begin to approach the restoration process with all those, those things involved without an exact sense of, of where to begin in terms of what point to start at to, to begin the restoration process? Right. And, and, and that, that is a challenge for managers. And in the past, the using the past as your stewardship guide was, was something that, that really guided you in, in what to do and gave you those, those goal lines to manage towards that, that you knew you were successful if you're able to return species that were on the landscape in, in the past. And, and today we recognize that in some situations, that's, that's going to be possible. And, and in others, uh, we, we may need to think uh, about uh, the system as a dynamic, dynamic system that's going to change over time. And, and so the, these conservation goals, they, they need to, to develop um, through, con- through conversations with, with various stakeholder groups to, to recognize and, and really come up with, with goals that, that make sense for a park that work for various stakeholders and, and for the species that these parks have been established to protect.
hasn't there always been a restoration process from some native people all the way through and and past pre-Columbus times? And so there's always been this restoration of the land. Yes, and and there's always been been human influence on on the landscape as as well, and 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 that's part of that challenge of of using the past to to guide stewardship. That it, it's a it's very difficult to choose one point in time in in the past, whether it's should it be the the pre-Columbian landscape, so prior to, to 1492, or or can we use the the period prior to fur trappers? Coming to Colorado, or what? What time can we use? And and, and one of the follies there is, is that we we forget that that native people have have really strongly influenced the the landscape for for millennia, and and that we really are part of the landscape. And so we we have to no, we we have an evolving sense for our, our conservation ethics and stewardship, and and what these systems should look like, and and what role humans play in them. How has the thinking on the protection of national parks shifted over time as nature continues to evolve? I'm thinking back maybe 50 years ago when it was almost the, the national parks were seen as museum piece, where it was, this is how it was back then, and it will always be that way. It, it, right, right. There, there was a, a report came out in, in 1963 by Starker Leopold, where there's, there's some great language in it, that a, a national park should represent a vignette of primitive America. And, and these sort of romantic notions about about how these these parks should look, and and we recognize today that that nature is dynamic and these systems are changing, and and they're not just sort of static postcard quality images, uh, but but parks are, are are moving fixtures of nature, of of conditions and, and species changing over time, and and that's part of the the shift in the thinking and the paradigm of of management and. And the National Park Service is celebrating its centennial this year, and so that's part of the now the looking ahead. Uh, there's a hundred years of, of management, and now we can look ahead and think about how we can continue to evolve as stewards to protect our, our natural heritage. And we mentioned CPR Nathaniel Miner's story about the Great Sand Dunes National Park and officials there working to save the Rio Grande cutthroat trout. Is that the effort they should be making in in that in that area? I, I think it is. You, you heard from from the manager there that that many of the the high elevation streams in that park have have very cold water in them, and and so it, those areas are likely to be suitable for the cutthroat trout uh, relatively far in into the future, based on 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 the the models for that system. But but we need to always look at that and recognize that in some cases, in, in some areas. Managing for past conditions is is not going to be achievable, and and, and these restoration projects uh, they they can be big dollar projects, and so we want to to make sure that that we're doing things that that are achievable and, and effective on the landscape, and and thus use forward looking goals. So why the switch then to adaptive management? It seems it's it's the path that you all are on. Will it be the path that you're on in the next twenty thirty years? That that's a good question. I, I I think time will will tell on that. Managers need to be willing to to always uh, look at their management and to review and revise as they go. And that that's really that is adaptive management. And and so being able to recognize sometimes that past past management activities may not be effective into in the future, and that they may need to be tweaked and changed in order to to achieve goals.
Nick, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nick Fisichelli is the Forest Ecology Director for the Skodik Institute at Acadia National Park. He's a former climate change adaptation ecologist with the National Park Service. He joined us from his office in Maine. Now we're asking for your help to inform our climate coverage. What changes have you noticed in Colorado, perhaps in your own backyard? What would you like reporters to focus on? Email us, environment at CPR.org. Up next, you're not imagining things. Athletes are getting taller and stronger. But aren't we all? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. With Broncos preseason in full swing, there's been fierce competition for starting quarterback. The potential winners include Mark Sanchez, Trevor Simeon, and Paxton Lynch. According to research, Lynch may have one advantage. At 6 feet 6 inches, he's the tallest of the three. Brock Osweiler, one of the Broncos' former QBs, stood 6 feet 8. Mechanical engineering professor Adrian Bejan and his colleagues at Duke University have studied, professor, have studied size in sports. He says you don't have to look further than Olympic athletes for proof that taller and bigger is better. Adrian, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Nathan. I want to begin with a little Olympic trivia. Jesse Owens, the 1936 Olympic gold medalist in track and field, stood 5'10 and 3 quarter inches at the time and weighed 165 pounds. Current Olympic track and field star Usain Bolt is 6'5 and weighs 207 pounds. Their shoe sizes, 8 and 13, respectively. And there are lots of tall female athletes as well. Is this increase in height indicative of a trend in sports over time? Uh, it is, but it is also predictable, or it should have been predictable decades ago. Um, let me um, share with the audience uh, some numbers I ran um, a few minutes ago. Uh, from uh, Owens to Bolt, the uh, the height of the winner increased by uh, six inches. That means um, by a little more than eight percent. From physics, this is the work that um, I've been uh, publishing. From physics, that translates into um, a predictable increase in speed of uh, more than four percent. That simply from uh, from physics. Turns out that the uh, Increase in the winning speed from uh, Jesse Owens to Usain Bolt is 5%. So in physics, that means uh, correct prediction, meaning order of magnitude uh, is the same, 4%, 5%. And even better, you can see that the effect of, um, you know, better training, better science, uh, medicine, wealth in going from Owens to Bolt accounts for only 1% uh, increase. That is the difference between uh, the predicted 4% and the actual 5%. So here's where science um, can be used by those who want to uh, um, possess the crystal ball of, uh, I call it the constructor law of evolutionary design in nature. In this case, the uh, future of the evolution of uh, sports. And so you can predict this out 20 years, 30 years, 50 years? Uh, this uh, this prediction is uh, true forever. In fact, uh, my work is in the news today, uh, even though I published it uh, 10 years ago. Every time there is a competition, <laughs> reporters contact me to uh, ask me questions. But um, scientifically, that means that uh, my prediction from 10 years ago is uh, correct and reliable. So then one can assume this is true for football athletes as well. Uh, even uh, more so for football athletes, um, the numbers that I quoted earlier, the um, the eight percent increase in height from uh, in comparing Bolt with Owens uh, and the, the rest versus speed, that uh, means uh, 
a, an increase of almost 30% in um, in the force, that is the punching force or the hitting force, uh -huh. um, the taller is almost 30% stronger than the, than the shorter, and that is a big advantage for the taller player in um, in football or some other sports like uh, wrestling and boxing. Incidentally, from the very beginning of the Olympic movement, the designers of this uh, recognized uh, the effect of size and invented weight classes. And uh, so uh, they're very clever. They're right on the money. Uh, and um, and um, that is the truth uh, that is, in fact, supported today by, uh, by my theory. But U.S. gymnast, uh, gymnastical medalist Simone Biles is 4'9", and the average size of the 2008 Chinese Olympic gymnastic team was 4'9 and 77 pounds. Isn't that kind of flying the face of what you're talking about? People are getting Not smaller. Not at all. No. Uh, quite, quite. But <laughs> on the contrary. Ah. Yeah, the uh, objective in those sports, in the gymnastic, uh, like in uh, figure skating, is not uh, is not uh, speed or punching um, a neighboring athlete. It is um, uh, the objective is obviously to look good, to look uh, uh, in equilibrium, to be to look to be courageous, and it is uh, uh, with regard to the latter that um, physics uh, shows why the winners emerge on the winner's podium uh, in uh, smaller and smaller sizes. The smaller the, uh, the athlete, the, um, the uh, smaller the force with which the athlete uh, hits the ground when falling. Therefore, courage increases in, um, in, um, in, in, among those who are smaller. You're familiar with toddlers falling all the time and not getting hurt. <laughs> And uh, so flying through the air uh, is, uh, comes easier to those who are tinier. So that is the uh, origin of, uh, of, um, of the trend that you, you bring up. Um, okay? Yes. So, okay. so with that in mind, in layman's terms, why are bigger athletes than better? Is it simply the locomotion, the moving forward, that <clears throat> force that they have? Is that that? Right, exactly. The, um, my first work on this was not about uh, athletes, uh, sprinters, and uh, swimmers. It was about uh, all animals, uh, swimmers, uh, runners, and flyers. Uh, so all of us uh, are basically animals moving on the landscape. Uh, or uh, if you want to look at the um, um, bipedal uh, animal, namely uh, humans, uh, each of us is a um, basically... <laughs> Uh, let's say, not a telephone pole, but basically a stick that uh, falls forward repeatedly. We don't hit the ground because the second leg comes in front and breaks the fall. Uh, in any case, the, um, the taller stick falls forward faster. Compare that uh, falling stick with the falling uh, pencil. Uh, so the taller falls faster forward. The taller, of course, is also heavier and hits uh, the ground harder. And so that's the whole physics of uh, animal locomotion. Uh, the beauty of, uh, frankly, discussing sports is that um, uh, we can watch the evolution of, uh, of, uh, of the sport, or for that matter, the parade of these winners on the winner's podium, or the parade of the team entering the stadium uh, from one season to the next. And um, uh, the reason why uh, evolution is more evident in um, in sports is that in sports, unlike in uh, in animal life on the range, in sports the objective is one. It is uh, speed in the 100 meter or uh, winning the game in uh, in football or basketball or soccer. And so um, when the objective is 
singular and clearly understood, then uh, the scientist can uh, see the connection between uh, yes, objective or function and uh, an evolutionary trend. Um, and so, um, by the way, uh, I like to, uh, to joke when I teach this. Uh, my colleagues in biology are correct to point out that in the biology one cannot witness evolution because that took forever. Well, uh, we can witness evolution um, in our lifetime uh, all we want if we, um, if we think about sports and if we uh, talk to our friends who know sports. In fact, your previous uh, speaker um, about the uh, national parks um, made, in fact, the same point. He spoke of nature as being uh, dynamic. The better word is evolutionary. He described it as uh, moving pictures. I agree. If you put together image after image of uh, the winner's podium at the Olympics, you see a movie. And on the, in that movie, the heights of these uh, uh, impressive uh, specimens um, if specimens are not the same, they change, but their heights are in fact uh, uh, increasing almost smoothly from event to event. So we're actually so seeing this over time. Of course, the average human height is increasing over time, from what you're saying. Uh, no, the average human height is increasing because of um, um, economic advancement, wealth. Uh, and, and that food. was the question. So are there areas but, of the world where that's not happening because of socioeconomic situations? Uh, let me finish. The, uh, the increase in the average uh, um, height of the population is uh, true, but it's actually a very small one-third of the um, rate of increase in the heights of these uh, uh, winning uh, athletes. It, yes, it's true. In uh, other parts of the globe, the, uh, the population uh, uh, average uh, height is increasing uh, at a uh, lesser speed. But anywhere you look, um, anywhere you look, even the, in the poorest areas, uh, mothers continue to give birth to uh, to individuals who are uh, uh, well built, uh, taller, uh, talented, of course, um, um, born to be naturals, quote unquote. And you see this uh, really, really well if you look at the evolution of uh, uh, soccer in uh, the English Premier League, where the uh, the talents are brought from anywhere in the globe, especially from uh, West Africa via countries such as France, um, because uh, in spite of poverty, um, talent uh, uh, knows uh, no frontiers. So final question, briefly. Does all this mean anyone who isn't born big and tall should pretty much give up on a sports career? Uh, unfortunately, that is true. And, it's uh, true. Not, not, <laughs> not, 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 not give up on a sports oh, career, I see. But, okay. but, but give up on, uh, on uh, the dream of beating Usain Bolt. Um, sure. Unfortunately, um, what I teach, uh, this truth, is useful to sports federations and even governments or ministries of sports to be aware of the fact that, uh, you know, uh, putting a lot of money into, uh, let's say, um, a Chinese 100-meter uh, sprint is, uh, is not going to lead uh, to gold medals, okay? That's, uh, that's, that's the truth. Um, yes. I wrote 10 years ago, uh, for everybody to have a chance at winning a gold medal, these sports that rely on speed um, uh, 100%, such as 100-meter dash and the freestyle, uh, should be divided into weight classes. That's like boxing, wrestling, and, uh, and weightlifting. And the like. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Nathan. 
Adrian Bejan is a professor of mechanical engineering at Duke University. He explains his theory of sports evolution in his book, The Physics of Life. We spoke about why height is an advantage in sports. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Our next guest says this is the original national anthem of North America. And yet the animal we heard there, a coyote, is among the most persecuted in American history. In Denver, a government-funded factory used to produce poison that killed tens of thousands of coyotes a year. And yet they've survived and even multiplied. Dan Flores has written what he calls a biography of coyotes. The new book is Coyote America. Welcome. Hello there. I'm proud to be here. I really wasn't aware of how extensively the government has tried to eradicate coyotes over the years. Tell me more about this poison factory in Denver. Well, it was called the Eradication Methods Laboratory. Uh, And it actually began in Albuquerque in about 1919 and then moved to Denver a couple of years later. Uh, where it became one of those classic 1920s kind of government jobs for people where the folks who were employed there bought automobiles and washing machines and radios, all the technology of the age. But what they were doing at their jobs basically was inventing poisons in order to eradicate from existence uh, not just wolves in the West, but also coyotes. So how did the chemicals produced there here in Denver kill coyotes? Well, uh, this lab was dedicated to the proposition of coming up with ever more efficient and effective killers. And so uh, the government agency, the Bureau of Biological Survey, that um, was basically sponsoring the lab, uh, it's an agency that's still with us and is called Wildlife Services today, but it was first using strychnine, which had been a kind of a classic 19th century poison for predators of all kinds uh, and was sold in hardware stores to people traveling west. So strychnine worked pretty well up until really about the 1930s. But once wolves were gone and uh, the biological survey realized that they had difficulty eradicating coyotes in the way that they had done with wolves, they started experimenting with different kinds of poisons. And Uh, As I write in the book, what they were really looking for, because coyotes were so intelligent, was a poison that would kill them more slowly than strychnine. Strychnine evidently worked so quickly that coyotes that were in the vicinity and saw one of their mates go down with it remembered the smell, uh, remembered the result, and they became wary of it. And so what this government lab was doing, I mean, and it uh, really got a a kind of a, a kick in the head from World War II and all the chemicals that were developed during World War II was to come up with poisons that kill coyotes efficiently uh, and slowly so it wouldn't alarm other animals. What they eventually uh, came up with was the famous poison 1080. 1080. Yeah. So why have coyotes been targeted so aggressively? Is it a similar story as we've seen with wolves? That was a lot to do with it. I think uh, if you look at the story, and uh, as you mentioned, what I tried to do with this book was to basically tell the biography of this animal, which I think probably maybe except for us has the most fascinating biography of any large mammal I've ever come across. Uh, it's an animal that uh, that evolved in North America, has been here in its present form for at least a million years 
Uh, and it's an animal that Europeans had never had any experience with. Uh, they knew wolves, they knew bears, but when Europeans came to North America, they didn't encounter coyotes until they got past the Mississippi River. And so for a lot of the 19th century, nobody knew exactly what to think about them. I mean, I I argue uh, in the book that it's not until the end of the 19th century that we really began to develop this kind of uh, increasingly negative attitude about them. And certainly the livestock industry is going to contribute to that. But I mean, even scientists in an era before anyone ever did any kind of natural history study of coyotes whatsoever, sort of uh, agreed that this was an animal that ought to be wiped out. So we kind of do it without really putting any thought into it at all. Uh, it seems to be a kind of a reflex. In Colorado, you're allowed to kill as many coyotes as you want any day of the year. And we checked in with Parks and Wildlife uh, person Jennifer Churchill. She's a spokesman there and uh, said the only restrictions come from urban areas where trapping or shooting a gun is restricted. But the really ironic thing that I learned in your book is that when coyotes sense they're being targeted, they actually reproduce at a faster rate. Yes, they do it. It's not a conscious decision on the part of the coyotes, at least not as far as I'm aware. I don't think any biologist has been able to demonstrate that. But they are closely attuned to the population of uh, other coyotes in a landscape. In fact, uh, a lot of what they're doing with their howls is to take a census of coyote packs uh, and individuals across a landscape. And when they don't hear other howls coming back at them, it seems to trigger a kind of a hormonal reaction in them that causes them to have far larger litters than they do when there's a stable uh, coyote population on the landscape. So ironically, one of the effects of, of uh, our persecution of them and of trying to eradicate them or even reduce their numbers has the opposite effect. It not only produces more of them, but it sends them into this kind of colonization mode. And so the truth is the reason there are coyotes in places like Chicago and downtown Manhattan today is because of this coyote war that we launched out west a century ago. And part of uh, Coyote's bad reputation came from Mark Twain. Uh, would you mind reading uh, what he wrote about them? Mark Twain was, uh, of course, one of the most famous of all American writers uh, in the 19th century. And he wrote a book in the early 1870s called Roughing It that uh, I argue in Coyote America is really the – it's the breakover point in Americans suddenly deciding what they think about this animal uh, about which they had sort of had mixed feelings up to this point. But Mark Twain, so he's a comic writer, and he he went on for about three pages about coyotes and roughing it. And uh, I'll just read you a little small selection of what, what he says. Yeah. The coyote is a long, slim, sick, and sorry-looking skeleton with a gray wolf skin stretched over it, a tolerable bushy tail that forever sags down with a despairing expression of forsakenness and misery, a furtive and evil eye, and a long, sharp face with slightly lifted lip and exposed teeth. He has a general slinking expression all over. The coyote is a living, 
breathing allegory of want. And that is Mark Twain speaking about the coyote. Uh, unlike the majority of Americans, including, it seemed, to Mark Twain, uh, you were drawn to coyotes at an early age, uh, partly thanks to Walt Disney. And now we bring you The Coyote's Lament. That's from an animated film in 1961 that was actually introduced by Walt Disney himself. Now, man has never had a very high opinion of this animal. But there are always two sides to every story. And our story presents the coyote side. Why do you think Disney made this film? Well, I think Disney was, as he was so many times in his career, he was on to a kind of a movement among the American population that was, I mean, this was the beginning of what we would call the age of ecology, and it resulted actually 11 years later in Richard Nixon issuing a presidential proclamation that actually actually forbade the use of poisons against coyotes on, on public lands. So I think he, I mean, he had this kind of tuned antenna about the directions that the American population were going and their, their feelings about things. And I think he understood that there was a change in the wind, that uh, animals like wolves and coyotes were going to come in for uh, a kind of a new view on the part of Americans. And I this- think he also was interested in the animals himself. I think he was seeing them in California. Uh, they were in Hollywood, and he knew that. They were already urban uh, in Los Angeles, and so he was intrigued by that. And the film, of course, talks about coyotes across the American West and how they're being encroached upon. Here's a little bit of the coyote song from the film. Oh, we once had a home where we just loved to roam and hunt rabbits and squirrels all day. Then man moved west and did his darn best to chase all our fiddles away. He built corrals and pens. Disney's Coyote's Lament from 1961. You're about 13 when this aired on television. What kind of effect did it have on you? Well, uh, as I write, I think I was part of the first generation of Americans to have my nature aesthetic shaped by uh, television programming. I mean, Walt Disney sort of invented the nature film, and I sat there as a 13-year-old and watched this and was absolutely entranced. And uh, what made the the story within another year or two even more uh, compelling for me was the fact that I began to realize as a result of uh, a a sighting, uh, uh, an adventure that I have that I describe in the book, uh, that coyotes were actually in Louisiana, where I grew up. Now, I, of course, thought of them as Western animals, as did everyone else, but they were already expanding uh, into the East and the South by that point, and I suddenly found myself in a place where there were actually coyotes around me. And you were 17 years old, and, and you came face-to-face with one, like you said, in Louisiana, and you killed it. So talk about that. I I did. In fact, uh, if you'd like, I'll I'll read the little selection in the book. Um, I, I, well, let me read this first, and then I'll, I'll respond to, uh, to what I write here. 
This is an uncomfortable memory for me, but here it is. It's an early daybreak with the sun a flattened red ball through the mists of the Red River Valley. I'm 17 years old. A coyote pauses in yellow prairie grass, her muzzle wondrously sharp and refined, her ears working. Dew droplets cascade into silvery pearls in the air above her as her tail switches the grass. Her intense eyes bore straight into mine. She is posing an ancient question, one I will not be capable of answering correctly until another decade of living is past. So a rifle blast shatters the humid morning air, and she yelps, spins, disappears. In an instant, I had personally recapitulated the last 200 years of coyote history. I had destroyed what I loved, drained beauty and perfection from the world with a syringe as I looked on, detached, stoic, a killer. Dan Flores, reading from his book, Coyote America. I want to take a break here. Let's pick up our conversation in just a moment. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking with Santa Fe author Dan Flores about his new book, Coyote America, a biography of a species that was targeted for extermination by government officials. Before the break, we talked about you actually killing a coyote, a coyote, rather, and in an instant, you had personally re- coyote history. How did you do that? Give us a little bit of, a, of an idea of why you wrote that. Well, I think I, uh, I basically was channeling the adolescence of, of America and its reactions to the native wild creatures of this continent. I mean, we, we came here uh, without very much respect for those animals. I mean, this story the coyote story is not a singular one. Uh, it happened to many, many other creatures. And uh, I think as a 17-year-old, I probably unthinkingly, adolescent-like, uh, without any solid basis for my action, simply did what other people around me were doing. And when coyotes were coming into Louisiana and the 1960s, I mean, people shot them on sight, as we tend to do uh, all over the country uh, yet today. And so I think it was an act of adolescence. It's one of those things that one does before you sit down and think hard about what you've done. Because the problem is the animal isn't dying in the sense of sport or adventure that you've brought to the game. The animals are dying in earnest. And yet before Europeans, and of course uh, yourself, American Indians thought of them as a deity. And you say they teach us about human nature. How do they teach us about human nature? Well, the, the truth is the oldest literature in North American history, which goes back probably as, as uh, far back as 10,000 years, are uh, the hundreds of coyote stories uh, that were a feature of the cultural life of uh, Native people all over the American West, everywhere that coyotes were found, they served as the primary deity figure, a kind of a hands-on deity who had created North America and created most of the conditions uh, for life in North America in these stories. And these stories, I mean, we've we've thought of them, and, and lots of people know about them. Um, 
we've thought of them as purely kind of trickster tales. And although the coyote figure in these stories does, uh, he does engage in some jokes and tricks, uh, I read those stories very differently. I, I retell four of them in one of my chapters called Old Man America uh, about this ancient literature. And uh, what I think these stories really are about is giving their listeners a sense of human nature. Uh, what they really do is to provide insights through this coyote character uh, into how human beings uh, react and what our, our basic nature really is. And so if you read them that way, they become this kind of fascinating philosophy about who we are and what our relationship to the world is. I think it makes them uh, stories that are uh, perfectly readable uh, in the 21st century, just as they were 10,000 years ago. Hmm. So, so very briefly, we've been talking for 15 minutes or so and calling the animal coyotes. I, I said coyote uh, there just a few moments ago. A lot of people in the West call them coyotes. So, so what's going on here? Briefly describe how that pans out. Well, I was intrigued by that, naturally writing this this biography of them, because um, I've heard both terms. When I was growing up in Louisiana, people uh, largely said coyote, and that's the southern, midwestern, and rural term that's uh, commonly used. It's not used on the coasts uh, or in the southwest. Uh, in those places, people... Uh, say coyote. And so I was intrigued by that. And I tried to track down that story in the book. And I'll, I'll try to be brief for you. The word is actually an Aztec word. It goes back to the Nahuatl language of the Aztecs. In the 19th century, for 75 or 80 years, most Americans call coyotes prairie wolves. That's what Lewis and Clark had called them. And that's what uh, almost everyone called them in the United States. But as people went to the Southwest, in fact, uh, to Santa Fe in particular, they began encountering people who were referring to them with a Hispanicized version of this old Aztec name, and it was this three-syllable coyote or coyote as the, uh, the Spanish said it. And so people, literary people who heard that and who went back to Boston or ended up in San Francisco preserved that name, and the native people many of whom were Spanish speakers as well, also preserved that three-syllable pronunciation. But there was a group of people in the Santa Fe, uh, Rocky Mountain area, and in Colorado too, the mountain men in the 1830s through the 1850s, who listened to this new name and decided it sounded a little bit pretentious and fancy to them. And so they shortened it to Coyote. Many of them were from places like Arkansas and Illinois and Kentucky, and that when they went home, they took that two-syllable pronunciation with them. And so we've ended up now, the 21st century, with this sort of unusual situation where some people call the animal a coyote, some people refer to it as a coyote. It's pretty clear you, like Walt Disney, are empathetic to coyotes. You wrote an op-ed in the New York Times called Stop Killing Coyotes, arguing that they pose no overwhelming danger. And yet pet owners across the country tell stories about coyotes attacking dogs or cats in everyday life here in Colorado as well. What's your take on that? Well, uh, coyotes do attack uh, pets. They do attack cats uh, and dogs. They do so, interestingly enough, not so much out of uh, wanting to eat them, 
But it's because coyotes in urban areas, just as they do in rural places, set up territories. And so whenever they encounter cats roaming around hunting songbirds or something or uh, a dog that's off a leash and uh, is let to run through a suburb, they sort of react to them as if they are competitor predators. And Dan, so people to... just have to learn to take care of their pets and keep them in. we got to leave it at that. Thanks, Dan. Dan Flores is the author of Coyote America, a biography of coyotes as they were targeted and then spread from the West across the U.S. Read an excerpt at CPRnews.org. That's our show for today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel.